Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is May 29, 2013. This is episode 1138 of the Survival Podcast. Yes, 1138. Today we're going to talk about permaculture again. Low input versus high input permaculture design. I've got... Two mainframe designs I'm putting in, waiting on Jeff to do the uh, main earthworks, but two distinctive systems that I'm working on right now. Uh, one, we just basically completed the initial installation with our workshop. The other one I'm just beginning on, I'll do largely on my own. Um, and we're going to contrast the inputs, outputs, lifespan of those systems. And I'll tell you, if you are a person that usually goes, oh, I don't like all this permaculture stuff and gardening and growing food. And, uh, if you actually listen to today's show, the analysis that we'll do actually goes into many different walks of life and how you might analyze uh, two different systems to put in alternative energy or two different investments. Uh, there's a certain level of analysis that the human beings have just lost the capacity to bother with. And, and today's show, even though it's going to be a lot of about the mechanics, the hows, the whats, the whys, the analysis is going to run through the entire th th theme of the show so that we can actually compare these two systems and not really which one is better, but which one is better for a given application. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day today, number one, uh, uh, sponsor of the day today, number one, is Western Botanicals. You know, if you need something herbal and uh, it exists and it's legal, <laughs> you'll find it at Western Botanicals. I'll just put it to you that way. They have everything I mean everything, and you either can get you know her whole herbs and make your own uh, stuff, or you can get pre-made preparations, uh, just about every form you can think of, uh, from essential oils to uh, to balms, uh, to liquids, uh, to tablets. They've got it all, and everything that they produce is either organically grown or wild crafted. It was important to me that I have an herbal supplier for you guys in the list of sponsors, and uh, Western Botanicals. Uh, just ended up being, you know, the perfect company, so to speak, from that standpoint. It's hard to find a company you can really trust in that world because everybody has something that, you know, cures cancer, reverses diabetes, or some other, you know, ridiculous claim. Uh, but these guys are just, you know, solid people that really care about you. They can help you when herbals are the answer or a part of support of other treatment. And we'll flat out tell you when there's something that they just really can't do or really can't help you with. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. You know, on the subject of herbs, herbs are not just good for medicinal value. They're pretty good for cooking. A guy I know that's uh, pretty much an artist when it comes to putting together herbal preparations for cooking is Chef Keith Snow over at harvesteating.com. Check out Chef Keith's website where he uh, will teach you to make cooking a life skill, focus on the technique rather than the individual recipe. And But when it does come down to herbs, man, Check out his herbal-based seasonings. Uh, the Low and Slow Barbecue, Montreal Steak, and uh, Northern Italian are my three favorite, but they're all good. Check them out today, uh, HarvestEating.com. Remember, he has a great podcast that you probably want to subscribe to at HarvestEating.com. Next up, I want to remind you guys about 13skills.com. It's a website that we set up to uh, vastly improve your skill sets in 2013. You can find out more at 13skills.com. And I want to remind you about the Walking to Freedom Forum. We're uh, we're really coming along with that forum. It's about time to go into overdrive with it as the uh, the voting comes to an end, and we uh, set up a board for every state. 
uh, that doesn't make the naughty list so that we can help people find new places uh, by voting with their feet and leaving the states that are the most oppressive and looking for states that are a better fit for them. Remember, we need you there whether you're going to move or not. If you're happy where you are, well, help other people figure out if it's the right place for them or not. Uh, learn more at walkingtofreedom.com. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You'll help support the show at a whopping uh, 18.3 cents per, per episode. Uh, there's tons of discounts in there. Discounts on silver, discounts on food and long-term storage food, discounts on gardening supplies, discounts on tactical stuff, discounts on gear bags. You get it? If it's self-reliance and self-sufficiency oriented, solar stuff. And we have discounts on everything that you can possibly think of in this niche available in our members' support brigade. And if you're buying stuff like that every year, a little bit here and a little bit there, this thing eventually or inevitably pays for itself. Learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. If you uh, are going to join and you are prior service military, uh, Peace Corps, or law enforcement, or active duty, either one, prior service or active duty, I do offer a discount. I also offer that to first responders like paramedics, EMTs, and firefighters. Just email me before, not after, before you join, jack at the survivalpodcast.com and put service discount in the subject line. Had a couple of days from people that, that emailed and asked for it to use the contact form on the site. It's okay. I found it, but it doesn't, you know, sometimes it can get filtered out that way and stuff, and I don't respond to you and you think I'm a jerk. The best way is to email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com with two words, service discount only in the subject line. No, don't add only. I'm just saying only service and discount in the subject line. All right, with that wrapped up, I'm ready to get into the main topic of today's show. And I want to talk to you about what kind of made me think about doing a, a podcast like this. When we did this uh, wood core gardening bed, uh, wood, core, wood core contour bed gardening workshop here, uh, again, as I reported yesterday, everybody had a great time. But one of the like special things that I didn't tell anybody about um, that happened on Friday was we had a guest instructor. This guest instructor is a gentleman named Nick. He actually is setting up a permaculture school uh, probably about 50 miles from me. And uh, so Big Whoop, another guy that does permaculture. Uh, this guy has actually been to the PRI in Australia, the Permaculture Research Institute in Australia, and interned directly under Jeff Lawton for six weeks. This guy was sharp. And he was a tremendous asset uh, when we were doing the workshop and giving people a second place to ask questions and, and, and provide information and be a sounding board. And one of the things he pointed out was, you know, this is a high input system. And it is and it isn't, but you know, when you when you look at the equipment and all the stuff that went into it, you know, and he said, you know, one thing we want to be teaching people is that there's alternatives and we always have to be doing an audit. Like this does this system over time produce more than goes into it? And if it doesn't, or it doesn't at least break even, then it's a it's not a sustainable system. It can't be continued on. It has to eventually have a return of surplus. And this system will, but it'll take a certain amount of time because of how much input went in, where there's low input techniques like just sheet mulching. And those low input techniques have a, a faster return. Uh, they, 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 put, they come back into sustainability uh, in an energy audit quicker. 
And I thought, you know, that's a great point. And I explained to him, you know, we're going to be doing this uh, this little mini forest garden somewhere between 2,700 to 3,500 square feet, depending on how much space I actually decide to use for it. And I'm trying not to use too much, but I'm also thinking about the additional space that I'm using on both sides of my outbuilding would very much be like the space that would typically be wasted in a typical urban or suburban landscape, which is those little narrow strips on both sides of your house before your neighbor's fence where, you know, the way they build stuff now, you could probably stand with your back against your wall, and if the breeze is right, you could spit a watermelon seed over the fence and hit your neighbor's house, that strip back in there. Well, most of what I would do that would expand past this 2,700 square feet would use these little strips on both sides of the one outbuilding, which would be representative of both sides of the house. So we're going to do that. But I basically said, you know, the primary thing that's going to happen over here is we're going to sheet mulch the whole thing. He was like, that's great. But, you know, here's the thing. When I get done with this analysis today, you'll start to realize that even though one system looks like it has a tremendous more amount of inputs, both systems actually have a lot of inputs. Most of these systems are very material and labor intensive to get up and running. It's the long-term payback that you really have to look at. But let's let's look at some things. So I have a huge list of stuff, but this show probably won't go long anyway. And I'm going to go a little bit fast with the stuff. So if you want to, you know, there's go to the show notes and you can get all the the materials that I'm talking about. And this is not going to be 100. percent This is going to be the primary input materials. And what you won't hear about is a lot of the plantings, other than some cover crop. And the reason is it's highly selective. You know, like, so I could say, well, five blueberries went into the contour garden beds, but, you know, is that all the blueberries that are ever going to go in there? And would you use blueberries? So I'm trying to stick with the constants here uh, in building a system that's analogous to what I have. So when it comes to the contour-based wood core beds, um, my initial materials, about 12 yards of wood mulch. It took me about 12 yards, maybe a little more, to provide all the mulch that I needed for the paths and the beds themselves keeping in mind that there are three beds that aren't mulched directly. They're cover cropped. And the cover crop is providing the cover and mulch versus uh, wood mulch on top of them. So 12 yards of wood mulch. About five tons of wood core, and that's being conservative. It's probably significantly more. I base that on every foot of bed, and there's about 270 feet of total bed that we put in over two different phases, using about 40 pounds of wood. I think that's ultra conservative. I think that when you're looking at a 30-inch trench and you're looking at large pieces, most of this was large pieces of live oak, uh, which was now dead oak because the, all these trees died. Uh, but, you know, you're looking at somewhere between five and six to seven tons of wood that went into 270 feet of bed. The only reason it's not 10 to 15 tons of wood is because we have a rock layer down there and we can only dig so deep. So we would have actually used more if the landscape would have allowed for it. So that's a significant amount. Now, the offside of that, where did it come from? Well, one guy that came to the class had a bunch of wood laying around, you know, rotting on his property and threw it in the back of his truck. And most of the rest of it came from right here. And it was all dead trees on property that needed to be culled out anyway. And right now I have a, I have tons more laying out there from a bunch of stuff that was up and wrapped around power lines that I didn't feel comfortable cutting out. And... I couldn't get pros in here to do it for me before the event. So now I've got all this other wood that will be used in different types of hugo mats. So the wood was an input, and there was labor involved, gas to run a chainsaw, you know, the little tractor cart we used to move it around and, and stuff like that. But the reality is it didn't have a direct cost. 
and it wasn't doing anything better anyway. It's not like we dropped mature, healthy trees to do this. So it's there, we have to mention it, and it's a significantly large component, but all we did is change the place that it was going to rot from the surface to the subsurface. So it's an input, but it's not an input the way, let's say, the mulch was, because we didn't have a mulcher here, we couldn't mulch stuff up, so I had to go get mulch and bum mulch off the Esplenda guys. All right. So next, 30 to 40 pounds of blood meal. And that's not all that that's not what we put in, but that's over the first year probably what I'll use in 270 feet of bed. <clears throat> it sounds excessive. On some levels it is. But when people say, How do you deal with the nitrogen loss? There's your answer. Okay, so 30 to 40 pounds, a, a bag of blood meal that I get at the lows for about six bucks is three pounds. Uh, so, you know, you're looking at 180 to $200 worth of fertilizer. Sounds like a lot, but here's the key. The wood cores are not nitrogen sinks. They're nitrogen traps. We just put that nitrogen, any that's in, in, in beyond what the plants utilize directly, into a bank that we can withdraw on over time through the life of the system. And it's almost impossible Unless we go to the point where we're burning plant roots, it's almost impossible to over-fertilize this system. There's so much carbon there to bind with nitrogen that we might even go into a second year fertilizing not maybe at that level, but at a higher level than you typically would. But by the third year, that wood is really into a mature state of fungal decay, and it's going to release that material over years and years and years. But the input is there in the beginning, and it has to be factored into the design analysis. The next thing is um, about 15 to 20 pounds of bone meal. Every time I put a plant in the ground, there's a handful of bone meal right where the roots go. That way, there's a nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, potassium availability directly to the plant before it even gets a chance to get away. And any plant in that ground that looks the least bit starved of nitrogen will get an infusion of blood meal. Pull the mulch back unless it's in one of the uh, cover crop beds and sprinkle it around. Uh, and maybe a little bit of bone too. And if I need to go to a liquid fertilizer like fermented beet juice or some other things to, to perk something up, I'll do it. I have no qualms fertilizing the hell out of those beds because I know that I, I can't lose the nitrogen. I can't lose any of it. It is going to be held in that, you know, multi-ton core of wood and to a lesser degree be held in the wood chips that are on the bed that are slowly breaking down over time building fertility. So that is an input, but again, we've banked it. We haven't lost it where if we do conventional row cropping and we put down that much blood meal, the plants will take what they need, the less rest will be in the soil and eventually will leach out. And we'll leach into surrounding areas. And I've seen garden beds where you can tell they over-fertilized, right? And it didn't, not enough to harm the plants, but you can tell that it wasn't utilized because you see this big ring of green around the bed, you know, a conventional raised bed. And it's more than just the water. You can see that the nitrogen actually leached away and you'll see it kind of leach down grade with the water. And you can see that even when they stop watering for the year or if they didn't do a lot of irrigating, that green is still there. And that's that nitrogen leaching out into the surrounding topsoil. And that's the grass or whatever is there, you know, going yummy and, and taking it up. 
in this system, it's almost impossible for that to happen because the nitrogen is either going to sink down into the bed or it's going to move into the pathways. If it moves into the pathways, it's held by the contour. It's held in there, and it's bound up with the other wood chips, and it becomes part of the entire the entire system, end-to-end, -end, mulched, ends up becoming not just an underground aquifer holding additional water, but a nutrient trap as well. And there's the only potential for any leaching is the last backside of the last row in the system could leach out a little bit. Anything from the front side of that bed all the way up to the front path, and it, it, look at the video I did of it uh, on YouTube today if this is not making sense, um, it's going to run into a wood core underground that's going to bind it up before it can atrophy out of the system. So it's a very intensive banking trapping system for nutrients, minerals, and moisture. It won't let it go. I used probably, I'm guessing here, those who were at the workshop know, I had this highly scientific method for making my cover crops. I figured out what I wanted. I dumped in what looked right, and I threw it on the beds. Um, I did go pretty heavy on the final bed with the cover crop. I let Dorothy um, put the cover crop seed down, and I was thinking to myself, that's quite a bit, even for me. Uh, I get pretty intensive with the cover cropping. And uh, she got halfway through the bed and goes, I need more. I'm like, oh, no. So that thing's going to be like a chia pet. Could be like a giant, long, worm-shaped chia pet. And uh, we'll, we'll see how it works. I mean, I just basically mixed up the same amount and evened it out, you know. Um, so that's that's going to be an interesting situation. On the cover crop, for two of the beds, uh, buckwheat, cowpea, daikon radish, millet, uh, made up the primary stuff. A little bit of dill seed in with some of those and things like that. And a few other little things here and there, but most of the rest of the stuff was plants. The last row is going to be 100% dedicated to a long-term perennial system. I just haven't designed what it's going to be yet. So included with that was Landino clover. So white Landino clover is is kind of a perennial, more like a biannual, triannual. It, it, it doesn't last forever unless you let it go to seed and it reseeds, but it sticks around for more than one season. I was okay putting that in there because that bed is going to be bound up into a perennial production system. Those cover crops were put in, one, whole, it's just pouring rain while we're doing this. I mean, this was not the best working environment for this, but, you know, the thing was scheduled, the equipment was here, show must go on. So hold it together so it doesn't erode. To repair it, put in nitrogen fixers, put in biomass accumulators, dynamic accumulators like Daikon. That Daikon is going to shoot roots down into that wood core. And some of the minerals and nutrients that are being accumulated in that wood core will within the first season be coming straight back up to the surface with that Daikon. Because that Daikon is a dynamic accumulator. Things like that. I won't go deep into it, but that's the reasoning behind the cover crop. Also, I would really prefer not to be mulching the beds with wood. I would like to mulch the beds with a thick layer of straw. I haven't been able to find a good supply that I trust yet. So we're trying this as, let's cover crop it. Let's grow its own mulch. Let's mulch it with its own growth. Let's see what happens. Um, next, four days of heavy equipment usage. Now, we did the work in a day and a half. And I wouldn't even call it a full day and a half. There was times that we were talking about things, explaining things, you know, so if, if everybody was just showed up and knew what to do, 
with no explanation if it wasn't a class, we could have probably done it without the rain in a day, the complete system end to end, all four events. We took a day and a half, and it was rain. And if there hadn't been rain, we probably would have worked longer and done more planning. But it got to a point where, with the mud, I could tell that we were at a point of diminishing returns. And I didn't say anything to anybody, but I kind of felt bad about calling a stop to it and saying, it's Miller time. But Miller time came at 3 o'clock the second day, and there was a lot of like times where people stopped and waited for the rain and went back to work. So really a day and a half to construct the beds. The four days and more like five days of equipment usage came from the fact that the people that lived before me here were maniacs. And those maniacs had put in four foot by 25 foot raised beds made out of cinder blocks, railroad ties, and garbage. And I mean garbage. I mean I have a 10-yard dumpster out front that we used to get rid of a lot of wasted packing materials and stuff like that that's probably 70% full. And it's, it's, I mean, it's 100% full, but 70% of what's making it full is garbage that came out of those beds. On top of that, when we tore everything out, we got the land in a pretty good state, needed a little bit of back grading to put down a pasture, and then the rain came while we were doing the work. And the whole area behind the buds be, beds became a massive mud hole, so I had to have the equipment operator come back two days later, so the equipment had to sit here idle for two days. And take some of the excess dirt that we had out as fill, spread it out and clean that area up. It looks great now, except that it's bare. But we can crop that. It becomes an opportunity now. And it's probably going to rain today. And if I can get my pasture mix out there, as soon as this show's over, it'll be sitting there waiting for the rain. And that'll be great. But there was a lot of equipment usage in this. And it was only for the second phase of the system. I did the first phase by hand. We'll talk about that in a bit. And then gasoline. So how much gasoline did this take? Um, I filled up four or five or three five gallon cans at the end of this little scenario. There's 15. And when we were taking the, uh, the, the, uh, excavator back to, uh, to return it, we stopped at the gas station because you got to return it full. I filled up my three cans and we put about five gallons in the excavator. So that means about 20 gallons of gasoline roughly went into this system. Now the excavator did a few other little things, but very insignificant in its fuel usage. All right, so what was the work required, and what, what does it give us now? So I did the first phase of this, and I didn't work every day eight hours a day. I took my time. I would do my show. I would do all my customer service. I'd go out there about, you know, on a non-interview day where I don't have an interview, about 1 o'clock I would get out there, and the day where I had an interview, I'd get out there about 2.30. I'd work for two or three hours, maybe, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. It all depends, and I had lots of other things to do, but it took me about two months to put in five beds, where we put in four in a day and a half, but my five beds were smaller in length. When we started doing this with the machine, it just made sense to go all the way to the end of the design with them and make them good long beds because we had equipment and it was easier to just keep a run going than to stop, close up a bed, drop back three feet and do it again. And the system was already set up with what I call gates, which are breaks in each bed, each row of beds that allow the water to trickle down to the next row of beds. So it took me two months to do 110 feet by hand. Um, it took 20 men, and not everybody was working all the time, but that's how many people were you know, here for the course. One machine, 160 feet a day and a half in the rain. So those people and that piece of equipment absolutely accelerated the production. And if I would have come here in the spring, like, see, I wanted to do this as a class. So there's another way to look at this. 
What would it have taken to do the whole system the way it is now for me, John, and the piece of heavy equipment to do without really worrying about planning, just getting it? And we could have probably done it in three days with the exception of all the work necessary to get rid of the beds that were there. And the beds are an arbitrary thing or an aberration, I guess I should say, because not every, you know, most people aren't going to have to deal with all of that crap to get it out of the way before they get to putting in their bed systems. But, you know, there's always something, right? If you don't have to deal with that, maybe it's a steep slope and you have to cut terraces. Uh, if you don't have to deal with a steep slope and have to cut terraces, maybe you have to deal with, I don't know, maybe kind of like a valley type system where you've got these multiple rolling valleys and they don't really work, you know, and can you fit it in or do you need to level them out? If you don't have to deal with rock, maybe you have to deal with clay and it's a little bit harder to work with. So there's always something anyway that we have to consider when we look at that. But the the thing we really need to look at, after all that input, after the seed, the blood meal, the hours of work, the equipment, the gasoline, how long is this system going to last? What's its lifetime? And the reality is with annuals, if we just planted annuals in it and row cropped it every year through four seasons, kept mulching it, it's probably 10 to 15 years, maybe because we used live oak and in the climate we're in 20 years, where at some point, If you want that system to continuously function as good as it has in the past, uh, with water retention and mineral retention, nutrient retention, you almost have to at some point dig up the beds themselves, drop wood back in, and, re and, and recharge that system with a new wood core system. And if you were smart, you would plan at like, okay, at 12 years I'm going to do this bed, At 13 years, I'm going to do this bed. At 14, this bed. And you would just do one bed a season over, you know, and, and cycle it through that way. With a caveat, you may not have to. You really may not have to. Those systems are really systems that as that wood breaks down, the whole system itself kind of evolves, becomes very, very water harvesting, very, very nutrient dense at some point. So it's, it's almost an unknown. Now, with perennials. If that system is all planted to dwarf trees, bushes, shrubs, stuff like that, if I basically turn that whole set of strips into a perennial-based system, its life cycle is infinite. You're talking about plants that when they're two to three years established in systems that are far less uh, sophisticated, far less water harvesting, far less nutrient retention, far less everything becomes self-sustaining. You put them into there, they become turbocharged, self-sustaining. So with a perennial system, even though that wood core eventually kind of rots down into just total soil, and it's not there as a wood core anymore, that perennial is so well established at that point, you know, it, it, for all intents and purposes, it becomes infinite with a little bit of maintenance. And it, with the right perennials, eventually you could walk away from it and let it success on its own, if you're going to let it really grow up. But to keep it the way you want it, there's pruning, there's trimming, there's chop and drop, there's weeding, there's things like that. Um, you're that kind of takes our required ongoing inputs. If you're going to do annuals, you're going to have to keep planting. So you have to plant. You're some weeding. There's a lot of weeding the first year with these systems. You've, you've disturbed the soil a great deal. Um, you've broken things up. You've made it loose. You've made it friable. Then you've either cover cropped it or heavily mulched it, and that does suppress the weeds. And I think one people, one thing people were shocked by is I had about five flower pots, big ones like uh, like blueberries and blackberries came in, and we just filled them with the same dirt that we were building the beds out of. And I set them over by the barn, 
And my intention was I was going to put like five different cover crops in them so that I could label the pots and people could see them in the pots and then go find them in, on the land. And I thought that would have been cool, but it was one of those things I never got to. So all they did was sit there. We never watered them, took care of them, anything. They just got water from the rain, and they were all full of weeds. I mean, just like looked like, you know, looked like a, a house plant you'd buy from Home Depot in a pot, except it was all weeds, a mixture of weeds. And then you looked at that, and you looked at the bed, and you realized that all those weed seeds are in those beds, and yet they're not emerging because they have four inches of mulch sitting on top, and the ones that do, you just yank out. About the only problem uh, invasive that we have to deal with in there is Bermuda grass and keeping that down. And I may finally you know, break down, at least with the annual beds, and maybe next year do the Jeff Lawton thing, pull all the wood off, uh, lay down Sunday thick edition newspaper, soak it down and put it back on. I have some concerns about that. The guy Nick uh, from, from Jeff Lawton's group said, you know, here's the thing. Yeah, there's some, you know, mercury and things like that in those newspaper inks, but your pH has to be in the neighborhood of like four and a half for those things to become bioavailable. So they're there, but they're inert. I, I'm not completely convinced of that, but if I convince myself of it, I'll, I'll give that a try to hold back that Bermuda in a few places where it keeps, keeps climbing in. But if you keep mulching and keep yanking, What happens is sooner or later you starve the root systems in the ground to the point where they begin to rot off. In the beds with the cover crop, there's almost no problem with weeds, even Bermuda grass. There's so much growth in there that's been advantaged, and all of the weed activity has been so disadvantaged that everything's just basically choked and shaded out. And it may be the better way to go. Um, I am now considering the fact that, you know, you might just... Cover crop the shit out of everything. Put in a few annuals here and there in with your cover crops, which we've done and which works just fine, and just not have heavy annual production in your first cycle with these beds. It may just be a better way to go. When I did them a slightly different way in Arkansas, several of them were treated that way, where they were just cover cropped. The cover crop sat in there from the summer to the fall. The cover crop was chopped and dropped. And then the annual fall plantings went in, and those beds did spectacular. And I had very low weed issues. Of course, there wasn't really any Bermuda grass on top of that mountain either. That's the one that is kind of a problem. So just some things to consider there. Um, one of the things I didn't really get to with the workshop was explaining first-year expectations. When you put in something like this, it's not really a good idea to try to expect that the first year is going to be an amazing year. That system is very young. And the things like the nitrogen uptake by the carbon and, and things like that. It's not even the loss of nitrogen. It's getting the nitrogen. It, it's more getting the nitrogen into the wood. You want it there. You want it there so it can start doing what it's supposed to do. So it's a charge up year. It's a stabilization of the soil year and things like that. Um, and it's a train the young dog not to dig holes in it year as well. It's also the case that you've probably like really really, you know, brought up a lot of pests. So you're going to have some pest activity a little bit higher than you would expect. And you kind of have to trust nature that as these systems mature, especially when you're cover cropping with buckwheat and things like that, you're going to bring in the predators. You, but you've got to give the system time. So that's kind of where we're at now. What are the primary um, attributes of this system? Water harvesting, nutrient retention, and erosion resistance. Those are the three big things that that system gives me. Um, it's going to harvest water like crazy. 
I, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at trying to figure out how to deal with the hard water and the problems with the drip irrigation clogging up and could you do soaker hoses, what have you. But the reality is you can take a couple of convention, two conventional sprinklers, um, you know, your side to side, not the rain birds, but you know, the ones that are basically shaped like an arch and they go back and forth with the water. You can put two in there, two big ones, run a splitter between the two of them. Put the thing on a timer, let it water itself, whatever frequency you think you need based on your climate and the maturity of the system, and water it. And will it be as efficient as a system that uses drip irrigation? No. It's not that important, though, because now you've got this, this water harvesting system. So you're going to lose very little of the water that's in excess anyway. It's all going down into the ground underneath the system and beginning the process of getting absorbed into those wood cores. So it's very, very efficient with the water harvesting. And I want you to think about it this way. If you make your house very, very efficient with insulation, it isn't that you don't have to use your air conditioner, but what you do use of your air conditioner goes further. And if you really want to cool your house down on a day where you're just not feeling good and you want it to be nice and cool and you don't want to be sweaty at all and you want to drop that sucker down to 67 degrees, it's not that hard to drive it down to 67 degrees. So if your plants are looking kind of stressed and you want to water a little bit more than you normally would, it doesn't take that long to charge that system up heavily to where your plants are getting more moisture than they could possibly need. And it's going to stick around till the next day. So th those are the things that harvest the water, harvest the nutrient, prevents erosion. I think people were shocked. Even the unmulched beds in the pouring rain, nothing holding the sides in, just sitting there, not going anywhere because of the design. So that kind of takes up the wood core bed portion, uh, and I want to move over now to what we're going to do with the forest garden. Like I said, 2,700 square feet is the target zone. There's some stuff on the sides of the building that, depending on how much I take up, could be up to 3,500 square feet. Do you count the building itself as a footprint? on? I don't know. So let's say I put in the notes 3,000 square foot. Could be that, could be more, could be less, but in that range. That is about the size, at least in Texas, of a typical backyard. In fact, it's a little bit smaller. Most backyards are bigger than that. Some aren't. Some are tiny as hell. But the average middle-income housing, if you want a yard at least that big, you can get it. And down here, you can get a, ha a nice house on a piece, I mean, like almost brand new on a piece of property that size, easily for $130,000. I mean, you're not even, you're not even straining yourself. Uh, to find that in a nice neighborhood. And I know many of us want to live out in the country and all, but remember, this is a, 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 I'm calling it an urban showcase garden. And when I say urban, I don't mean downtown big city. I mean urban, suburban, anything with urban in it. So suburban, urban, uh, but typical backyard stuff, microspace permaculture. So what am I going to need to get this thing off the ground? One thing I'll need, and I have quite a bit of it, but I don't know how much of it I'll use versus getting new stuff because they're pretty affordable, and a lot of mine are cut in pieces, and that'll up another input if I use more pieces. Uh, but landscaping timbers. You probably wouldn't need this in most backyards. I've got this three-acre property. I've got this space, and I want some way to define its edges. Where That might be done a lot by fencing and buildings and, and just landscape features, decking, whatever, in a backyard, where I have this kind of like blank slate space. So my thought is to go ahead and just ring the whole area in landscape timbers. That'll help retain the mulch that's going to be one of the inputs as well. Large spikes. So they make those big galvanized spikes 
So my thought is you drill two holes in each landscaping timber, you drive them through the landscaping timbers into the ground. Uh, so I'll need about, about 40 to 70 of the spikes, 20 to 35 of the landscaping timbers. Uh, again, they're not real expensive. They last forever. Some people are worried about the, the uh, preservative in a landscaping timber. It's, it's really not a concern. It's it's not like creosote in a telephone pole or a railroad tire or something like that. It's just there's been a lot of research done into it, and the effect on any plant life is minimal, and the the retention of anything like there's some arsenic in there. Well, guess what, friends? There's arsenic in all soil. It's a very small, insignificant amount, most of which is bound up with the carbon in the landscaping timber and stays bound. Otherwise, it wouldn't continue to protect it over the years. And if you've worked with these timbers, you know how long they last for. So, uh, spikes in timbers. I need about, again, about 35 landscaping timbers if I do the, the full tilt bore entire thing in wood chips. I need, uh, and I already have two galvanized stock tanks. And I don't need those. I, these are, some of this stuff is want. Some of this stuff needs to be looked at as additions. Because honestly, I could just mulch this area and plant it. I mean, that could be the whole thing. So my, my input on the mulch um, is going to be 20 to 25 yards of, of mulch. That could be my only real input here. And I, that's part of what I want you to understand. If I just wanted to get it ready to plant and start planting guilds into it, that could be the whole input. And that was Nick's point. There can be very low input systems. But this is going to be a much higher input system. But I think you'll see why as you start to get a picture of it. So two six-foot by two-foot um, galvanized stock tanks. The capacity of the two of them together is 840 gallons of water. So that's 840 gallons of water that I can hold in the system and use to build nutrient and use for irrigation and, and fertility. All right. One of them is dug into the ground about halfway. The other one's sitting on top of the ground. We just threw some sand under it and leveled it. Both of them are surrounded by dirt. So we had plenty of dirt laying around. Uh, which you know you might have to bring fill in for if you, if you if you didn't have it somewhere available, um, but that way the sides of the tank are insulated and moderate the temperature of the water, and it'll look nicer on, on top of it when it's all planted. Great place to plant herbs. Great place to plant lots of different things on those slopes around the tanks. So that's there. One and I don't have this yet, but I'm going to pick it up. A galvanized oval end tank is what they call them. These are the big galvanized tanks that are about two foot wide, and they can be Four foot long, six foot long. In this case, I'm going to do two foot by one foot deep by six foot long. That's going to sit above the tank that's higher up in the system. It's going to be filled with gravel, and it's going to be planted to reeds. It's going to be a reed bed. Okay, That's because aquaponics is going into this system. I'll need four polyethylene barrels cut in half for the aquaponics system and gravel for the aquaponics system. Again, though, you really got to see that as... An extra, I don't need it, it doesn't have to be there, it's an add-on. And it's an add-on because of how cool these events are. There was a gentleman that came to this event, he had his own aquaponic system set up. Instead of bell siphons and all these moving parts, all he had was a tank, a poly drum, sitting up higher than the, the grow beds. In that poly drum was a piece of pipe. A piece of pipe had a T, a PVC T on it, and then an extension of PVC pipe. Once the water got up to the top of the PVC pipe, it started flowing, and it created a siphon. Okay, And when it got down to the T, it broke the siphon. 
And then it would fill back up, siphon again, and back down. There's no moving parts. And if you want more water, you just don't glue the T and the pipe together. And I'll, I'll see if I can get him to send me a picture of this or find it on his Facebook or what have you. But it's, it's like uber simple. And as soon as I saw that, I'm like, I want to put that in. Because it's a system that anybody can look at and build. And, and don't worry about exactly how it works. I'll, I'll get you a photo so you can see it. But the whole point is if you want the water to fill higher, you just pull the little piece of pipe that's on the upside of the T out, put a longer piece in. If you want it to flush less water each cycle, you put a shorter piece of pipe in. And it doesn't need to be glued because there's no pressure, so you can always change it and adjust it, expand or contract your system. So that system is going to basically get integrated into a plant I already had, which was just two ponds. And the next thing, um, a polyethylene tank, 1,500-gallon capacity. So this is a great big tank. And yesterday, John and I put it up on six inches of cinder block. So we laid down some sand. We leveled it off as best we could. We threw the tank up there. So the tank will fill with water from the roof, hold 1,500 gallons. We'll be able to overflow the tank into one of the six-foot round ponds. That pond will have a stand-up in it that will, when, a pond, when it gets filled to a certain point, will overflow into the lower pond. So that was the original plan. So I could overflow the top pond, overflow the bottom pond, and push the nutrient from the ponds out into the little forest garden. Or I could just keep them topped off, and I could use the water from the 1,500-gallon tank to do that. I could also just you know, tie into a valve off the 1,500-gallon tank and water straight out anytime I wanted to. The aquaponic system, this is where this comes in. This is pretty cool, folks. The lower pond... And I'll do a video of the area today that you can look at and, and get an idea of what's going on here to understand it better. But the lower pond is about 25 feet away from the upper pond. And those two are connected by pipe in the ground. And again, whenever the upper pond gets too full, it just flows into the lower pond. And the lower pond can overflow out into the system and fertigate the system. Okay? So, if you put a pump in the lower pond... Right? Just kind of follow this. I know it's audio only, but think about it. You put a pump in the lower pond. You pull the water out of the lower pond and pump the water back up to the siphon tank that feeds the aquaponic system. The aquaponic system, when that tank gets full enough, when enough water's in there, siphon starts. It starts discharging the water into the eight grow beds. The eight grow beds eventually overflow. They have pipes to allow them to overflow. They overflow down into the oval tank that is the reed bed. The reed bed helps pull additional nutrients out of the system because it's a bigger system. You're looking at, again, you're looking at uh, 800 gallons of water here or so. Um, let me get that exactly for you. 840 gallons of water. And you're only looking at eight grow beds. So you're actually kind of oversized on the water end of that system. So the reeds help pull that off. The reed bed then overflows back into the top pond, which when it's too full, overflows into the bottom pond, which is where you're pulling the water from with the pump in the first place back up to the siphon tank. The whole system's a closed loop. And instead of using complex technology, the only moving part in that entire system is the pump. And the pump just sits, it's a submersible pump, It sits in the bottom of a lower tank, and if it fails, you replace it. That's the whole system. No other moving parts. Just gravity flow of water from that point on. The system gets low on water. You open up the rain catchment. You fill up the water. Done. You don't have to worry about chlorine. You don't have to worry about chemicals. 
Everything is completely self-sustaining. And that is going to be an awesome component to the system, which is why we added it to it. Hardwood mulch. To mulch an area that size, we're going to need 20 to 25 yards of mulch for the first mulching. And it's just basically, you're going to look at it, the whole thing's going to be mulched. I'm going to put some pathways through it, but the pathways are going to have the same mulch. They're just going to be defined that that's where you walk. And that's going to help us design all the trees and, and plants around uh, the rest of the system. There's also going to be picnic tables in there for when people come and want to have lunch or whatever. Uh, at the courses, it'll be a really nice sanctuary to sit with the water flowing and the frogs chirping and, all, and the food all around. And it's going to be awesome. Um, but that's, that's what we're going to do is we're going to mulch the hell out of it. Um, obviously, I'm going to need PVC pipes and fittings. I haven't worked out all the math on exactly what I'm going to need. That's pretty low-cost, one-time cost stuff. Rain gutters for the outbuilding. Yeah, you know, are they part of the system? I listed them, but I can tell you this. Whether this got built or not, the rain gutters are going to go up there, and it's pretty cheap to put rain gutters around an 800-square-foot metal building. It's a, it's a one-day project, and, you know, have a beer at the end of the day, not when you're on the ladder. Um, not hard at all. And electrical wiring. I'll have to run some electrical conduit down to the lower pond, uh, which is just adding another pipe in the trench uh, to run some power down there to run the, uh, the the submersible pump. And to be honest, instead of getting into hard wiring stuff and things like that, I'm probably just going to put a big enough piece of electrical conduit in there, PVC electrical conduit, that a standard heavy-duty extension cord can run through there because it's only maybe 25 feet of total run. And then we'll just wire an outdoor power box on the side of the building that already has power to it. So the whole system, even with all of that, there's some expense there, but it's pretty low input. Uh, not on my list, but you know, worth mentioning, there'll be some lumber to build a stand for the aquaponics barrels and a stand for the reed bed. Because the reed bed's got to be higher than the lower pond, and the aquaponics barrels have to be higher than both the lower pond and the reed bed so that the whole water will trickle down. But again, I'll do a video on this today, and it's just a mess out there right now. But I think that all of those things I just said will make a lot more sense when I when I get that done. So this is going to be an outdoor aquaponics system. We are probably going to do a workshop in like September, and the guy that, that showed me the siphon system will probably come up as a guest instructor for that. I think that's going to be a great thing, and we will probably not put any fish in it right away because it has to have some time to build up. We'll use some kelp-based seaweed stuff to kind of kickstart it. And probably, you know, a month later, I'll throw a bunch of, you know, eight-cent goldfish in there just to get the system established. And we won't do any protein production until the spring of the next year. But that's, that's the basics of this system. So what we have is a large mulched area with paths, defined spaces, an aquaponics system, and a rain catchment system. Work required and system output analysis on this. Um, I don't know how many people will touch this. We'll do workshops. John helped a little bit already. We did dig the ditch with the machine because it was here. I would have never rented a machine to dig the ditch. It's a 20-foot ditch. It's about 12 inches deep where it goes into the, the lower tank because it's about a foot in the ground, but the rest of it's maybe 6, 8 inches. It's not hard digging. There are some rocks in there, but it's actually a pretty decent area of the property. I could have dug that in half a day with a shovel. It, it's it's not the dirt that, that surrounds the the tanks. Yeah, we brought it in with the uh, with the machine because the machine was here again. But you know, it's a wheelbarrow job or something like that. So one person could do this whole thing without really putting anywhere near the effort that I put in to just phase one of the contour beds. It would take longer because it's a lot of mulch 
and there's a lot of planning and there's a lot of thought, but it's not physically intensive and the inputs are primarily material. They're very low energy inputs. And that's the difference here. The list of materials is longer, but the energy required to get them into place, you know, you're talking how much energy does it really take to put in rain gutters? They're lightweight. One person can physically carry them up a ladder. I mean, your, your, your energy input is a cordless drill. You know, and you won't even wear out the battery and the wall from putting the, the rain gutter in. Um, putting the pipes in. I mean, it's piecing it together, cutting it with a pipe cutter. It's, it's all really easy, low energy input. So the, the real energy require one person with an easy workload over a long time. And that's how most urban forest gardens are built. One person managing their backyard four or five years before they're done. I don't think we'll take four or five years, but That is the because people have jobs, they have lives, they come home, they work for an hour, they go back to what they're doing. Saturday they lay down an area of mulch, and that's an area that maybe is not even going to be planted until next year. That's actually good. The longer the mulch is there, the more the ground becomes conditioned and ready for planting. So um, easy. Again, I want to point out, the aquaponics system is completely an add-on. It was never part of the original design. The water tanks and the 1,500-gallon tank were, but they're already in place. And for those of you that think about, well, a 1,500-gallon tank, could one person really get that thing up onto a, a platform by themselves? <laughs> I had it delivered from Tractor Supply, and I moved it to the backyard by myself. I flipped it over on the side and rolled it back there. Um, it was a little bit tricky getting it up onto the center block platform, but if I had been by myself, I would have just took a piece of, like, three-quarter sheet ply and laid it on there like a ramp and pushed it right up. Those poly tanks are not heavy. Now, you're not going to pick it up and throw it over your shoulder. But when it comes to moving them around, one full-grown man can move those things with no problem. They're just not heavy. Full of water, we calculated that that tank will weigh about 12,500 pounds. So very heavy full, very light empty. The six-foot steel, uh, you know, galvanized steel tanks, easy, easy, folks, to move those things around. So there, there's nothing... In this system, even building the, the framing for the, uh, the aquaponics system, I mean, that's, you know, maybe you, it probably makes sense to, to rent a nail gun and a compressor if you don't own one. It just would make the system go faster. It could be all done with screw, screwed together with good quality deck screws, um, would be a great way to do it. You might have to do a couple post holes for it to anchor the stand down, but it doesn't have to be anchored much. Because when it's got all the weight of those grow beds and it, it ain't going nowhere. Um, so it, it's, it is low input. I want you to really get how low the, the energy inputs are into this system. Um, required ongoing inputs. Planning. Uh, until you, and you're probably always going to be throwing some manuals into a system. It, it's almost inevitable that you're going to want something like basil in your system. Now, We do it right. Basil and parsley will largely recede, but we might want to give it a little kick. Even if we're not doing a separate garden, or even if we are, we might want some peppers in there, especially some hot peppers and things like that. They bring life to the system. They bring color to the system. But it's not a lot of planting, but there'll be always some planting. There's, there's going to be some weeding. There's going to be some fertility. You're going to want to bring some fertility in. But this system will produce, the contour bed will produce a lot of fertility with the wood mulch over time. And as the wood mulch breaks down, you just keep adding it. It's so much easier uh, consecutive years as it builds up. But 
there's probably still going to be a need for planting certain things for fertility, especially in the beds that are dedicated to annuals. There's going to be some form of organic compost fertility, things like that you're going to want to bring in. Uh, attracting worms will do a lot, but you're going to have to fertilize some. Um, in the forest garden system, fertility, a lot of it can be built just with chop, chop and drop. So if certain trees reach certain height and you decide this tree doesn't need to be any bigger ever, and you're chopping it off, you're just chopping it up and dropping it to the ground right around that tree. That's going to do a lot for fertility. The ponds will do a ton for fertility. All the detritus that falls in those ponds can, you know, occasionally just basically be dredged out by hand. You stick your hand in there and pull it out. And that's an anaerobic, high-nutrient material. And it'll take a while for it to become aerobic so it can be used, but you can put that straight on. And every time the ponds overflow, that fertility is being spread. So there's going to be less fertility input needed, uh, less mulching input needed, and you're going to do, but you're going to do a lot more pruning because there's a lot more things in there that need to be pruned. System life, infinite for most components. Um, stock tank, maybe 20, 25 years, you know, you end up with a, a stock tank rusted through. I've seen older ones than that. It all depends on how they're maintained. They actually seem to maintain better buried in the ground, especially with a sand gravel base like we put in to leach water away from the exterior uh, and protect them from the elements. But it, very long term, pipe in the ground lasts almost forever. A pump could wear out, all right? There's a maintenance of the aquaponics system, but again, it's an add-on. The system itself... If, if we got it established after six or seven years of intensive management and everybody on earth just died, the system would keep running. The tanks would continue to overflow and provide additional irrigation every time there's a rain event. They would provide additional fertility. The system would overgrow itself. Certain plants would success faster than others and it would mature in the forest. And you would probably end up with it expanding out and trees growing straight up through the buildings. But it's not going anywhere. It's, it's the system itself, once established, once those perennials have their roots down into that system, that mulch layer is there, and that they're naturally dropping leaf litter every year, it's going to last forever. Your job is to maintain it at the level of maturity you want. That's where your inputs come in. But it's, it's really an infinite system for most components. I mean, yeah, the poly tank eventually can wear out, the, the, you know, the infrastructure, but the, the in-ground components of the natural part of the system, it's forever. It, it now, what are its primary attributes comparing it to the wood core beds? Water harvesting, nutrient retention, erosion resistance. I would say almost on par with the contour beds. The nutrient retention, I would actually say, is just as good after the system matures. Uh, the water harvesting, almost as good. Without putting contour-based systems in, and eventually we might, but the initial design is to be low input, so we won't be moving a lot of earth. It won't quite have the, uh, the, uh, the uh, water retention, and therefore it won't have quite the nutrient retention. But it'll be very, very good and far more than adequate for the purpose. It will also have protein production because of the fish. It'll have energy conservation as well. And here's an interesting way to look at the energy conservation component of this uh, with rebounding energy. And this is something I picked up from Jeff Lawton. So I mentioned in the aquaponics system this last grow bed, but that grow bed, instead of growing annuals, would grow a perennial reed crop, some type of reed, um, maybe even miniature cattail, something like that. 
And we could use other useful components of cattail, which is why they might be a good read for this. But that big thing of reeds, you might wonder, where, where the hell did he come up with that? Why add that in there? Well, again, that system's going to produce a lot of nutrient. And Jeff did a video one time that I watched where he talked about how he had pushed water through this system over and over and over and over again. It was a pretty sloped piece of land, fairly large piece of land. Swales, ponds, swales, ponds, on and on and on. He'd held the water, and you get down to the bottom corner, lowest corner of the land, and there's not room for another full pond, and there's just nothing. And at some point, you got to go, I've made it, do all, do let the water go. But what he was able to snake in was a reed bed. Not a full pond, just a reed bed. Okay? Well, how's that rebounding energy? So the reeds take up all the nutrient that would have left the property with the water. You cut the reeds several times a year and use them as mulch high in the system and move the nutrient with one little manual input all the way back to the top of the system again. So we won't quite do that here, but as we cut those reeds out, chop them up and mulch with them, we'll distribute the nutrient that was in excess that was a problem Because the fish will produce more nutrient than eight grow beds can take out, but the reeds being very, very nutrient hungry will balance the system and allow that nutrient to be moved anywhere, including as a fertility aid over to the contour beds. Because the systems can indeed work together. So a final analysis here. The forest garden will take longer but require less physical and machine labor. A lot less. The wood core system is more conductive, conducive to grow crops. Um, it's much easier to grow a lot of peppers in those rows than it is peppers distributed throughout the forest garden. We can do some, but we have to find little happy spots for the peppers to be, where they get enough sun, the shade mixes in, and different. Pe and actually, we can do some really cool peppers in there, but we're probably not going to go in and plant a row uh, inside a, a clumpy polyculture of you know a dozen or two dozen jalapenos for the use that we get out of that pepper. We love jalapenos and bell peppers, right? So there's certain crops that just don't really fit in that forest garden well. They fit much better in a row garden type situation. So they have different things. Both systems are going to have many initial inputs, and the list will grow. So I've given you like this is like the hardcore nuts and bolts, get the system up. But we're going to be in there and going, yeah, you know, if we added this or if we tweaked that or we brought in a little bit of this or somebody will say, hey, look, I have a couple pieces of culvert. What can you do with it? Do you have any use for it? Uh, yeah, I could cut it in half and turn it into beds. I mean, who knows? I can use it to drain water from here to there. I, you, know, you know, I have no idea. That's a lot of recycling, though, that goes on with stuff like that because a lot of those inputs do come from the idea that's born of the object. And what I mean by that is, You never thought to do something, but then you see an object and go, well, that object would serve multiple functions, and some of those functions would be useful on my property. Therefore, that object that's up for grabs, I'll take. Here's an example. So John, the guy that ran the equipment, his parents live next door to me, and he's always over there. That's how I met him, tinkering around, doing things for his parents. He's just the kind of guy that if mom or dad needs something, he's going to get it done for him. So I see him out there filling up these terracotta big square things With, with this good fill soil from uh, Silver Creek down the road here. Uh, it's a materials place that does compost, wood chips, all that's where I get my wood chips. And um, I'm looking at them, I go, those are pretty cool looking planters. He goes, yeah, they're not planters. They're actually open on the bottom. 
said, well, that's good. It's terracotta. We'll breathe and all. What are they? He said, they're lighters from a chimney. One of his friends that does construction work had a bunch of them left over from some construction work on several different houses. And basically, they had no use for them. And as soon as he saw them, he's like, well, they're great planters. So they're a big, square, terracotta thing that was free with an open to the ground. So if you plant something in there, it's going to move into the ground and, and, and also be able to take nutrient, not just from the pot, but from the ground itself. So they're planting them with different things all around their property right now. So there's a lot of the things that get added on that, yeah, they're inputs, but are they costly inputs or are they taking something that would have otherwise ended up in a landfill or simply rotting on the side of, a, of somebody's yard? So we have to temper the inputs with what would have been done with them had they not been used. Because many times that's what we're doing. But there are things that we're going to go, I'm going to go to the store and buy that. And we have to think about that and the, the total energy into the system. Uh, both systems are truly long-term systems developing their own cycles. They're both systems that will be far better uh, stabilized and far more productive in third and fourth and fifth year than they will be in their first or second year. And they have the ability to last a long time with a little bit of maintenance. Um, the forest garden is more energy conserving and easier to maintain. Um, there's not a lot less planting. Uh, the trees provide a lot of their own nutrient. Uh, the, the, the whole system's just, it's easier to maintain a forest than a garden. And then call the forest forest garden. It just is. Because forests are designed to be self-sustaining. Where as long as we're doing some row cropping, There's going to be more energy inputs into any type of a row garden, even what I think at this point is probably the most efficient method of conventional gardening ever developed. I really feel that way about these contour wood core beds. I don't think that there's anything you can do with something people are doing today that gets more efficient. True hoogle beds probably are, but most people don't want a six-foot bed in their backyard. They just don't want it. So this looks good, fits what people want, and probably gets you 80% to the place of where a large hugel bed does. Um, another thing, though, to think about, though, is on a larger property where you can have both of them, they provide for each other, right? There, there's, there's the water tank, for instance, 1,500-gallon water tank can be used to irrigate the contour beds. They're downgrade. That was by plan. So there's a lot of interaction that can be developed. Um, And planting and plants must be calculated based on final designs, so they're not really suited to a direct comparison. In other words, I'm, I'm not going to ever plant 50 pepper plants in a forest garden, and I'm never going to plant you know, a mid- to full-size tree in the contour beds. I'll put dwarf trees in there because they're different purposes. So saying, well, there's more input initially with plantings into one versus the other is not really a, a great direct comparison because there are different types of plants with different types of outputs. But in the end, the analysis is how much comes out. How much comes out for how long based on the inputs. And, is, and until you get to a point where the system's producing more than it's taking or the initial debt's repaid, the system itself is not self-sustainable. But how do both of these systems do on self-sustaining? To me, they get very, very high marks. One thing I would say would be a really great idea would be the contour beds to not do them, again, not do them at a time where it's going to rain. That would have made everything more efficient. The next thing I would say is to use a bigger machine than the machine we use called a termite. 
Um, it was probably perfect giving that it did rain. Um, a better solution probably would have been a small excavator and a bobcat. Because most of the small excavators don't have a bucket loader. And we needed the bucket loader and the digger arm. Uh, an excavator would have been a lot smoother and would have done a lot better job with the trenching and some other things we wanted to do that we couldn't do. Um, another little tool that we used, I found a good use for a tool, a, a, a tiller. Yep, we used a tiller. We For the pathways, it was very hard for the machine to cut those narrow pathways and deal with some of the, being a lighter machine, to deal with some of the deformities in the ground and actually get down and grade it. So all we did was take this little tiller, run it through the paths, and then pull the dirt out. So the tiller had a use. It just wasn't a conventional use of a tiller. A little bitty uh, walk-behind tiller that John had and brought over. So there was another input there. So th there's a point at which you have to say it's really about, you know, how long does the system last? And I think if you were to go and, and if you could get a supply, and there's plenty of it out there, of wood uh, and mulch for, for next to nothing, and I think if you scavenged, you could, there's no reason you couldn't take you know, suitable machinery and put an acre of these things in and, and do it relatively quickly within a month at, at, at maximum. I mean, I think if it took more than two weeks, something's gone wrong, but things tend to go wrong. But if you can get the, if you get the material staged and, and an acre of these things, the, the production would be phenomenal. It would just blow you away. Um, on the forest garden, some things we could do and we might do. I might fence the area off and throw the chickens in there for about a month before I really begin any intensive mulching. I might throw them in there for about two weeks and then start adding mulch and let them turn some of the mulch up a little bit as they go. Um, it would be a great way to put a good nutrient in there and get a lot of the soil disturbance before the mulch went down. So that's something very traditionally done as well. But that wouldn't really be an input. No, of course it's an input. You have to put the chickens over there. Chickens got to be somewhere anyway. Um, chickens got to eat anyway. Chickens gotta poop anyway. Chickens gotta, you know, take a dust bath anyway. The chicken has these intrinsic characteristics that would really be a minimal input, if any, you would count into an energy audit there because a chicken's either behaving like a chicken in a place I've thrown some fencing around and it's, the fencing doesn't count because it's temporary. We can reuse it over and over and over again. Um, so that would be another way we might tackle this. So I think I'm gonna wrap up today, but what I kinda wanna leave you with is, And understanding that these systems may seem very energy-intensive or resource-intensive to establish, but what are the alternatives? And a lot of the alternatives require almost as much effort to establish and have none of the long-term return. Putting in basic raised beds is actually pretty labor-intensive if, if you've ever built one, um, especially if you don't have dead flat ground to just stick some boards on and throw some dirt in. Um, and then they end up being an awful lot of work to water, to irrigate, to fertilize, to maintain versus something like a contour-based bed, which does a lot of the work for you. Uh, a forest garden has this resiliency because of deep root systems, plants at different layers, pulling up nutrients, sharing with each other, builds a huge fungal-based system very, very quickly uh, in, the, in the ground litter and has just a tremendous long-term productivity. There was a little add-on to Jeff Lawton's Food Forest DVD. And one of the food forests that they showed is over 2,000 years old in Morocco. And that's pretty impressive, but it's a large community food forest. It's something the entire community does a little bit on every day. You know, everybody goes in and picks dates and pomegranates and figs and 
chops and drops and stuff like that. It's just they don't know it's permaculture. It's just what they've been doing for 2,000 years. Everybody there does it. And it's impressive, but again, it's a very large system. There was another food forest. It was on maybe three-quarters of an acre, maybe an acre, something like that. And it was a family that had a couple houses on the property, 300 years old. And it's very much an urban food forest, 300 years old. One family member handing it down to another family member, and, and plants in there that, that Jeff Lawton had never seen, never even heard of. Medicinal plants, tonifying plants, edible plants, you know, plants that can be used for materials. And that was built over 300 years, and it's still going. And, you know, unless something goes politically wrong, it throws that family off of their land, there's no reason that system can't be there for a thousand years. Now, what I want to ask you, all, of all the raised bed gardens that you've seen in the world, are there any of them that you really see being there for a hundred years or 300 years or a thousand years? And the answer is probably no. So the energy inputs are acceptable because of the duration of the system and because of the longevity of the system and because of the ever-continuing improvement of the system. If we're constantly mulching and chopping and dropping, we're actually building soil at the fifth highest rate of any system in the world. The highest rate is shallow marine systems followed by shallow lakes and ponds followed by forest, followed by savanna, and then mulch gardens. So we're number five. But number five is pretty good when you look at what you're competing with when it comes to building soil. Whereas modern agriculture actually has a number of what's considered acceptable soil loss per season. It's okay to lose X tons of topsoil per acre. You can't build it that fast, but it's okay to lose it. That's modern agriculture. And that's what most people are doing with their yards. Micro-modern agriculture. These systems create longevity so that you can hand them down to future generations. And we're just beginning. And this final thought here on the analysis. If you really go back through this show again, you'll find that you can take that analysis and use it in analyzing two different business models. You can use it in analyzing two different ways to manage your money. You can use it in annual, analyzing ways to provide for needs and services for humanity. You can use it to determine medical treatment options. You can use it for anything. It's a, simply a different way of thinking. What went in? What came out? How long does it last? What are the rewards? What are the, the detriments? When we start looking at things that way, we start to realize how destructive many of our practices are. And the reason that's a survival topic is we're so spoiled today. You know, and I'm not the guy that says not everybody can have a big screen TV. I don't care if you want a big screen TV. I have one. I'm not getting rid of it. But there may come, become a time when nothing comes on it, where it becomes useless. It's something I have for now. But if we ever have the big implosion of society, a massive shift that we fail to deal with, and, and we go through something like Cuba did after the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of these things that we take for granted, oh, we'll just dump some more fertilizer on the field, you know, oh, I'll just go pick up, I'll just go fill the tank again, uh, oh, we'll just turn the faucet on and get some more water. Some of these things may start to fall apart. And when they fall apart, any solution that you put in place to replace them 
will by necessity have to be self-sustaining. It will have to require less input than it replies output, or it will fall apart and not continue to work. You want to understand that? Look at our economy. Our economy right now, the way we run our monetary system, is the most non-sustaining system ever devised. And people go, well, it's lasted 100 years. Yep, it has. How long do you want an economy to last, though? 100 years or 1,000 years or 3,000 years? I guess it depends on what it's doing. But the reality is the things that we're doing today in agriculture, in business, in society, in education, financially, are not sustainable. And the reason I put so much emphasis on permaculture in the Survival Podcast is it is the science of sustainability. And if you don't want to grow tomatoes with it, great. Grow a business with it. Grow a society with it. Grow a community with it. And it doesn't have to be hippie-ish. You get very little hippie stuff on this show. And uh, I would say this permaculture event we just did was the most non-hippie permaculture event that's ever been done in the history of mankind. Uh, this was a bunch of gun-toting, uh, beer-drinking survivalists uh, that got together and had a great time around a common ideal. And it was a lot of fun, and I hope to see you at some of my future events. Uh, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you